two Supreme Court decisions rock Georgia politics. Honorable, the Chief Justice and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Patricia Murphy. Greg Bluestein is off this week. Coming up later, I'll be joined by the AJC's Mark Nisi to take a look at how the Supreme Court's decision on voting rights in Alabama could affect Georgia members of Congress. But first, Armaya T. Prabhu is here to talk about her reporting on the effects of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade here in Georgia and across the country over the last year. Maya, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, if you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. We invite you to join us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. And we're back with Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Maya Prabhu, tell us about your reporting on the Dobbs decision. We have the year anniversary coming up on Saturday at the end of this week, and you've done a, a ton of reporting and interviews with women uh, and doctors who have who are involved in all kinds of ways and affected by this decision. Tell us a little bit about what you've learned so far. I would say the biggest thing is that um, abortions in Georgia have dropped by about half. Um, the number of abortions that have taken place, I did an analysis looking at the months of 2022 leading up to the Dobbs decision which was in June, but then our law took effect in July and compared that to the number of abortions that happened after that. And they dropped by half, about 45%. And the other thing to notice is that more people are getting abortions earlier than they were before, only by about a week. Um, so as we all know, the the law kicks in around the detection of fetal cardiac activity, which is typically around six weeks of pregnancy. The average point in a pregnancy when folks were getting abortions prior to the law taking effect was about seven weeks, and now it's about six weeks. Um, another thing that, you know, there are exceptions in the law that allow you to get abortions past that detection of fetal cardiac activity, rape, incest, life of the mother, viability of the of the fetus. And we've had about 200 of those instances in 
Georgia, where f- fetal cardiac activity had been connect- had been detected and abortions were still able to be given under those uh, exceptions because doctors have to notate that. And on the form, they have to say, what was the exception? Why was the reason that you performed this abortion after fetal cardiac activity was detected? And it's, you know, it's not, it's not a ton. Um, you know, we went from an average of about 4,000 abortions per month before the law took effect to about 200 abortions per month. And something that I I found interesting in in those figures was that fetal cardiac activity in at least two instances had been detected by four weeks of pregnancy. And so four weeks is from, this is something I find really interesting because four weeks, the way doctors track pregnancy is from your last menstrual period, right? So that's typically two weeks before conception. So if you're thinking about there was fetal cardiac activity at four weeks and the abortion was granted, that's two weeks from conception. So, you know, we've always said it can be as early as six weeks, but, you know, it's even earlier than that in some instances. And so there were instances of people getting abortions at around four weeks of pregnancy when fetal cardiac activity had been detected. Um, And then as late as 25 weeks into pregnancy, we've seen doctors grant abortions past that fetal cardiac activity up to 25 weeks. Let's talk about the groups of people that this is affecting because you've reported on different groups as well. One group are the women themselves who are seeking abortions or in some cases not able to get abortions. And you've talked to a number of those women. What have you found out from them? What kind of stories are you hearing? You know, I spent some time Um, at one of the Atlanta area abortion clinics a few weeks ago, just kind of stood out there on a day when they do, because they don't do abortions every day at this clinic. Um, So on one of their busier abortion days, a Saturday, there were 23 people who came and checked in to have an abortion. Uh, Of those 23 people, one person changed their mind and and left and did not get an abortion. And one person, uh, they detected fetal cardiac activity and they said that she was six weeks and one day. Um, and so, you know, that woman, she's like, you know, she's married. Her husband was with her. She has three children. And she's like, I can't, I can't do (laughs) four kids. It's just too much. We just can't take that on. You know, this, I like, this is not something that I, that we can take on as a family. And so at this clinic, what they do is they, they tell people like, look, these are the neighboring states. These are the places uh, where you can get an abortion past this point. And these are the funds that you can access if you need help with any, like financially to get there, to pay for the abortion. Um, And so we have instances like that. And then, you know, an article that I wrote that ran on Sunday, this past Sunday, I spoke with a woman who went to an abortion clinic. She had scheduled an abortion. She went in, she found out that she was seven weeks and, you know, fetal cardiac activity was detected. She left there. She made a decision that she was going to get an abortion in Illinois. She had booked the appointment and this was all before her family, like her parents knew what was going on. She's a young woman, about 21. And so then once her parents learned, her parents, her sister, they all talked to her and, you know, she changed her mind and made the decision that she was going to keep, give birth and raise the baby. Um, So now that little boy is about two months old. Um, He's a 
adorable. Um, you know, I went <laughs> wow. and met with with that family. She's now married. Um, she married the father of her of her son. But what I thought another thing I thought was interesting about her story was, you know, she said my whole life up until then I had always been. Uh, you know, pro-life. I, I, I don't, I think abortion is wrong. I think abortion is murder. But when I was in this situation, dating someone for only a few months, getting pregnant, she was like, I knew immediately that I wanted to get an abortion. And then, so she kind of had this like push and pull back and forth internal struggle that she went through. But, you know, she's a, she's a great mom. You know, I can see it just from the, you know, couple of hours I spent with her and her family and she is happy, you know? So there are, various different ways that things can shake out when they go to an abortion clinic to get an abortion and they're told you're too far along, you can't get one. What a story. That one really landed with me because it's just, you know, these two paths that diverge in a wood. It's just incredible. But all of this is happening on a very accelerated timeline for women. These A lot of these decisions are similar to what they would have faced maybe at three months or under the previous law at 20 weeks, 22 weeks. Do they feel pressure to make these decisions quickly in a way that they felt like they wouldn't have before? Does that element come into their decision-making process right now? Yeah. You know, a lot of the people who I spoke to were aware of the law because a lot of people, you know, they don't necessarily think about what the laws are until it affects them directly, right? So if you're not someone who's ever had an abortion before, if you're not someone who's involved in that debate on one side or the other, or if you're not a journalist, right, you most likely don't know what the laws are around abortion. So what I found is, you know, the people who I spoke to who ended up finding out that they were too far along, they all knew um, what the law was. Um, And so they, they were making decisions very quickly. You know, like I said, that young woman, that 21-year-old woman, she said, I knew immediately that I wanted to get an abortion. Okay. So so abortion clinics are still operating here in Georgia. Um, and there are, are these sort of more clear-cut cases in which it is, you know, what you would think of as an elective abortion before six weeks. After six weeks, it gets really different. They may have, they may have to travel or change their mind. Um, what about for doctors, more traditional OBGYNs who are dealing with some of these uh, pregnancies that are dangerous pregnancies or high-risk pregnancies, or when they do find those fatal, fatal fetal abnormalities, do the doctors have concerns for their own licenses in these situations? Are they confused? Um, what, is, what is it like to be an OBGYN in Georgia right now? Right. So the doctors who I've spoken with say that there's a lot of um, uncertainty and ambiguity in the law. Um, there's language like when it comes to the life of the mother, it's um, like uh, severe bodily harm, I think is the exact language. I don't have it in front of me, but the exact language in the bill. And, you know, they're like, this is not a medical term. I don't know what that means. I don't know, like, at what point. And so what we hear, you know, we've heard nationally, and we even had instances that we are aware of here in Georgia. What we hear is that people are in a miscarriage, right? They're miscarrying, but there is still fetal cardiac activity. But it is clear that the baby will will not survive. And doctors are opting not to um, go forward with, you know, the, the D and DNC, which is essentially the same method that's used for a surgical abortion um, because they don't want to, 
be charged. They don't want to have their licenses taken from them. And so they're sending women home and saying, oh, you know, once you start, once it starts affecting you, you know, once you have an infection or, you know, like the one instance I can think of, it was a woman, her water broke early and they said, there's still fetal cardiac activity. We can't do anything. They sent her home. And within a couple of weeks, when she started having an infection was when she was able to go in and then get the abortion. Yeah, that's the exact kind of story that um, doctors warned us about and that Mm -hmm. um, Democrats talked about quite a bit on the floor of the state house and Senate when they said, you know, if you take this decision away from doctors, women will be sent home um, when they know that uh, that their lives could be in danger with infection and and not come back until there is an actual infection. So it sounds like some of those things actually are things that doctors are having to deal with here in Georgia. What are the um, what are the next steps here in Georgia? Because that six week law um, certainly has gone into effect. You've done a lot of reporting on what that's what that means here in the state. Um, but there is a legal challenge um, against the existing Georgia law. So what's the status? of that. Right. So, um, you know, our law passed in 2019. It was immediately um, taken to to federal court. The ACLU abortion providers sued um, and the law was put on hold from 2019 until last year when the federal appeals court said, well, after this decision at the at the high court, you know, this this law can take effect. And so what happened is the ACLU and abortion providers went back and and filed another lawsuit in state court saying a few things. One of them is that the state constitution has a uh, a broader application of the, the right to privacy. Um, but another argument that they made was this idea of void ab initio, which is I'm learning a ton of legal jargon as I'm reporting this topic. <laughs> but it's basically Georgia law says that if you pass a law that is in conflict with, you know, federal law, that law is void from the beginning. And so they made this argument in state court in in Fulton County that this law was void from the start because when they passed it, Roe v. Wade was a law of the land. And so this law has has never been um, it's never been legal and lawmakers should have to go back and pass a new law if they want to pass this law now. And um, the Fulton County judge said, I agree with this argument. And, you know, and we had a week, about a week of, uh, he was like, I agree with this argument. And, you know, this law is off the books. And so we had about a week in November where abortion law went back to what it was, which is about 22 weeks. And we had a lot of, like, there's a big spike um, in number of abortions that happened that in that week period. But then the state appealed it to the st- to the su- state Supreme Court. And the Georgia Supreme Court said, no, this law has to stay on the books. You know, we're going to keep enforcing it while we make our decision. They had oral arguments in March and they have until November <laughs> to make a decision. Um, I'm sure lots of people, myself included, are expecting and hoping that it comes sooner than that. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're going to see if the Supreme Court agrees with the Fulton County judge's assessment of the law. But even if they do, it still goes back to that same judge because the judge only ruled on that particular aspect of the law. So he didn't go into the constitutionality of it. So that would be a decision that would have to come from him if the Supreme Court agrees with the state. If the Supreme Court agrees with with Fulton County, then 
the law comes off the books. Um, Maya, what's next for your reporting? So as we, you know, we have the one year anniversary of the Dobbs decision on this Saturday, but then in a few weeks um, on July 20th, we have the one year anniversary for when our state law took effect. And so I am me and a team of journalists at the paper. It's not all me. <laughs> we we want to tell all of the stories that of how this law is affecting people in their real lives. And so, you know, I mentioned a woman who I've connected with, but I still would like to hear from more people who have, you know, tried to get an abortion and were told that they couldn't if they had to travel out of state, if they put the baby up for adoption, if they kept the baby. Like, I want to hear from as many people as I can. So, you know, please reach out to me. I am easily found across social media, email address maya.prabhu at ajc.com. And you can also email Patricia or Greg, and they, I'm sure they'll forward uh, in, the information to me. But if there's anyone out there who wants to tell their story, please reach out. Okay, great. Well, the Politically Georgia listeners know all about how to get in touch with us. We hear from them <laughs> on the regular. So no problem with that. Now, Maya, before I let you go, um, I also need a news update on your foster dogs. <laughs> so I, yes, I had two foster dogs for about two months, um, in addition to my own two personal dogs. Um, and both of them have been adopted as of this past Saturday. So I am, I say I'm an empty nester, even though I still have my dogs who are, I love very much. Sometimes I feel like I neglect them, but I still have them. I'm going to take a little break because having two foster dogs at once was a lot, but you know, the organization that I work with, Georgia Homeless Pets, plug, um, you know, we have dogs and cats and probably this weekend I'll be going to get another dog soon and and I will be pitching him for the dog of the day. <laughs> Always breaking the line for the dog of the day because it's for a very good cause. Well, Maya, thank you so much for joining us and um, we will follow your reporting as well. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back with Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Well, we think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Well, joining me for this second segment of the Politically Georgia podcast is Mark Nisi. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. You are knee deep in reporting on all kinds of voting, voting machines, voting rights, et cetera, et cetera, here in Georgia. Thank you so much for joining us. You are kind of on vacation right now, aren't you? 
Yes, except for today. I had to um, put in the work for a state election board meeting today. But otherwise, I am out of the office. Thank you so much for doing this. I saw on your Slack when I was slacking you to do the podcast, there was that little picture of a palm tree that indicates a person is on vacation. But I slacked you anyway, just to see if you would answer. And you did. So perfect timing <laughs> to be working. Well, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I needed you. I needed you. And here's why. Because we are talking about the Supreme Court decision last week when there was an a challenge to the Alabama congressional maps under the Voting Rights Act. And the Supreme Court ruled that the Alabama maps violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Tell us what that means, if you don't mind. Sure. So Section 2 of the Voting Rights of 1965 is the part of the Voting Rights Act that specifically prohibits voting practices or procedures that discriminate on the basis of race or color. So this is a huge part of the Voting Rights Act, and the Supreme Court was deciding on whether this part of the Voting Rights Act applies to redistricting. In this case, it involved Alabama, where about 25% of voters are black, but only one out of seven congressional districts are drawn in a way that would allow black voters to elect a candidate of their choice. So now in Alabama, what will have to happen is that the legislature there will have to redraw its political maps. And following this ruling, other states, such as Georgia, may have to do the same thing, depending on lower court rulings and trials that are coming up later this year. Okay, so the Supreme Court, um, under its new makeup with Ketanji Brown Jackson and the other new conservatives on the court, heard the oral arguments in this case way back in October of 22. And so we have some audio from that. Under our precedent, it's kind of a slam dunk. If you just take our existing precedent the way it is, and the three judges below all found this. The three judges below said, this is an easy case. It's not one of the hard ones. It's not one of the boundary line cases. That was Justice Elena Kagan talking about the argument from the appellants who were saying that the established precedent that the court has already ruled on when it comes to Section 2 really should stand and that this was not a complicated case. It was pretty straightforward. And here are the arguments that the appellants made. And this is a representative from the NAACP. There's nothing race neutral about Alabama's map. The district court's unanimous and thorough, intensely local analysis did not err in finding that the Black Belt is a historic and extremely poor community of substantial significance. Yet Alabama's map cracks that community and allows white black voting to deny black voters the opportunity to elect representation responsive to their needs. So, Mark, a majority that included um, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who joined the liberal justices on the court to decide in favor of the challenge to the Alabama maps, came down with this decision. And there has been a Georgia challenge to the maps as well, along those same lines. So, what did you hear in those arguments that we might hear in Georgia again? Is that is this the kind of challenge and the kind of conversation you think is going to happen around the Georgia maps? Yes, I think the issues are largely 
the same. And the Supreme Court, it was a five to four decision with two conservative appointed judges siding with the three liberals um, to uphold the way the Voting Rights Act has been interpreted for years. And this is the same test, the same criteria that will be used in federal court in Atlanta when deciding whether Georgia's maps do racially discriminate in violation of the Voting Rights Act. And some of these factors are whether um, minority votes are politically cohesive, have an opportunity to vote sufficiently as a block to defeat, um, to elect their own candidates, or conversely, for the majority to vote as a block and defeat minorities' preferred candidates, and a bunch of other factors, such as whether there's a history of discrimination in that jurisdiction, whether voting is racially polarized, um, the extent to which minority candidates have won elections. Um, there are it's a total of about 12 factors or so that a judge looks at and that will be argued in court. And then the judge will decide whether the totality of the evidence under these factors justifies a ruling that would find that Georgia's maps, especially for Congress, but also for the General Assembly, for the State House and Senate, whether they do violate the Voting Rights Act's provision prohibiting discrimination in voting. So something that I thought was fascinating in the findings of uh, the majority were that intent was not part of this conversation. They didn't need to prove that Alabama lawmakers meant to discriminate against black voters, just that the maps that they drew did discriminate against black voters and did diminish their ability to have kind of equal representation um, in their in their elected officials. I've heard from a number of Republicans who were involved in redrawing those maps um, last year uh, that their kind of their main defense was there. There is no attempt here to discriminate against anybody. We have redrawn the lines. Republicans picked up a seat in the um, congressional district, um, even as sort of demographic gains would have told you or might have might have indicated that Democrats would at least hold their own in a congressional district map makeup. Um, because there was no intent to discriminate, Republicans I spoke with said there's no way this is going to fall to a court challenge because nobody meant to discriminate. There was not an effort there. Um, but it doesn't sound like that really needs to be anything that uh, people in Georgia challenging the maps would need to prove. That's right. Intent is not one of those dozen or so factors that a judge will consider when deciding whether the maps violate the Voting Rights Act. Um, to put it simply, the the plaintiffs, their main argument is that, look, Georgia's population grew tremendously over the last decade, about nearly 500,000 more people, um, more black voters um, in Georgia over since 2010. Um, that's a 16% increase in the state's black population. And the state's white population only grew, only actually fell. It fell 1% in over the last decade. So, but and yet black voters, all these new black voters that moved into Georgia, they're not getting any additional representation. They're still um, left with the same number of majority minority districts as they had under redistricting in 2010. And they're arguing to the judge that that is evidence of that they are being discriminated against, or as they put it in the lawsuit, that black voting strength is being diminished. 
Okay, so, and you just said that it would affect both the congressional lines as well as the legislative lines for the state house and the state senate. Um, if there were a decision reached that they needed to redraw those maps, what's the timeline on something like this? When do you think we might know if those maps would get redrawn? And then what happens after that? Well, each map is different, and there are multiple pending lawsuits before. Um, the federal judge overseeing this case, Judge Jones in Atlanta Federal District Court for the Northern District of Georgia. So, you know, it's possible that one map would be found to violate vo the Voting Rights Act and another wouldn't be. Um, and that will all be decided. This case could come to trial um, later this year, potentially, or it could be decided without a trial. You know, um, the judge did ask for each of the parties to submit new briefings in light of the Supreme Court ruling. And so he will review that and decide on a path forward. But I think it is likely that we will have progress in this case sometime this year. The courts are very reluctant to make election-altering decisions during election years because the Supreme Court has advised them to avoid the risk of voter confusion and chaos among election officials that could result from changing election rules close to an election. And if, in fact, the judge, Judge Jones, does find that these maps in Georgia did violate the Voting Rights Act, then it would be punted back to the Georgia General Assembly to give it another try. They would have to do another map drawing session as they did in late 2021 to create new maps that potentially would meet the court's standards. Okay, well, just when you think it's going to be a quiet political year, something like this happens, and that could really, really shake things up um, later on this year if they did indeed need to go into special session to redraw those maps. Um, so, Mark, as long as we have you here, first of all, thank you for that update you just told me about. And, and let me just add on, you know, what's important about this is the stakes, right? Um, of course. Georgia is still a Republican-run state at every level except for the U.S. Senate, where we do have two Democratic senators. But in Congress, uh, Republicans control nine out of 14 seats and both the state House and the state Senate. So the impact of this, if the maps are withdrawn, is that Democrats will be hoping to make some gains politically, right? Make some inroads into the Republican majority and perhaps pick up a seat in Congress. And this will be happening not just in Alabama, not just in Georgia, but other states too, where some of these cases are pending, such as Louisiana is often mentioned as a prime target by Democrats who are looking to make gains based on Voting Rights Act claims. That's incredible. And then add to that the incredibly narrow House majority that Republicans enjoy right now. Um, you could see how that could really, really shake up things on the Hill. And then here in Georgia, obviously, as um, it looks like there could be a, a requirement or a need at some point, if depending on what the um, uh, courts decide if there ever were a need to uh, rewrite the abortion limit law if they have a, a you know an appreciably different 
makeup in the General Assembly of Democrats and Republicans, you know, you could pretty quickly see how that would affect not just abortion law, but election law, um, all kinds of things that uh, typically um, come down to just a handful of votes and just those most contentious cases. Well, that's just, just fascinating. And things you things you didn't quite expect always pop up here in Georgia. That seems to always be the case. Now, Mark, as long as we've got you here, I want to ask you about a story that you wrote for the AJC on Tuesday, because you have reported that the state election board met and they discussed um, taking over Fulton County elections. They weren't deciding to take over Fulton County elections, but this has been an ongoing conversation over whether or not the state would get involved in the elections in the county after the county has run into numerous sort of logistical problems over many, many years. What happened on Tuesday? The state election board had its meeting and they dismissed the long running um, case that was seeking or considering a takeover of Fulton County's elections board. And so this has been going on for two years. It was created by Georgia's voting law that was passed following the 2020 presidential election, which allowed state takeovers of county election boards. There was this performance review process and observation process of elections both in 2021 and 2022, multiple reports and hearings. And today, Tuesday, was the end of that process. The state election board um, heard from Fulton County, heard from the performance review panel previously, um, asked questions of Fulton County, and also um, kind of put a little pressure on Fulton County to continue improving heading into the 2024 election cycle and had asked the county's incoming election board chairwoman if she would assist in a process to ensure that all counties are meeting minimum standards for election operations. And um, it appears that the incoming chairwoman, Patrice Perkins Hooker, was amenable to that idea. So this is the end of that performance review and potential takeover process. Uh, the performance review did find some problems in the 2020 election, um, you know, sloppy procedures, for example, not sorting ballots correctly, um, double counting 200 ballots initially, failing to read a memory card initially. Um, but there were audits, there were recounts ultimately. Um, the count was checked and rechecked, and it came out very similar uh, in each of the counts. And ultimately, Fulton has made improvements. It has um, changed those processes to ensure these things don't happen again. And it also has new leadership, both at the election board and a new elections director. Okay, well, Mark, we will have you on again and again for more updates on that and every other voting situation, disaster, non-disaster, recount, non-recount, anything you can think of dealing with voting. Mark Nisi is your expert. And Mark will have you back on really soon to give us the update on whatever we missed while we were paying attention to other things in Georgia politics. Uh, well, coming up on Friday's episode, we'll answer your questions from the listener mailbag, which you can call now on the Politically Georgia hotline anytime. Leave a question and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. That number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Let us hear from you.
Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast today. You can find links to all of the stories we talked about in the episode summary of this podcast. We release new episodes every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,